Hi, and welcome back to the Shifting Schools podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. I am flying the plane solo today. Jeff is off traveling, so he's not with us this week. Don't worry, he's back soon, and he's going to be really envious that he missed today's conversation. We are talking with the co-authors of the brand new book, Lessons of the Pandemic, Disruption, Innovation, and What Schools Need to Move forward. We talk about not only some of the lessons that need learning from the pandemic, but also perhaps lessons that need celebrating. Let me tell you a little bit more about our co-authors. Dr. Tim Presley is an associate professor of psychology at Christopher Newport University and is a faculty member for the university's master's in teaching program and the Center for Educational Research and policy. His co-author, Dr. David Marshall, is an associate professor of educational research in the College of Education at Auburn University. Since 2020, much of his research on the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on K-12 education. Uh, he has since edited two books on the topic, and he's done a lot of documenting um, from the first 15 minutes of the crisis. You'll be able to learn more about their research by heading over to the show notes. Again, you'll learn more about the book by heading over there too. Before we dive in to this week's discussion, we've got a quick word from our show sponsor. Are you in the middle of your teaching career and wondering how to best manage your finances? Money Pickles Financial Advisors specialize in helping educators like us. They offer practical advice on investments, savings, and even navigating pension plans. With Money Pickle, you're not just getting an advisor, you're gaining a financial partner who understands your unique needs as an educator. Head to moneypickle.com slash shifting schools today to sign up for a complimentary, no obligation video call with a financial advisor. That's moneypickle.com slash shifting schools. We thank them for being a sponsor of this podcast and of educators at large. And now with that, on with the show. I'm very excited to be sitting here with the co-authors of the new book, Lessons of the Pandemic, which puts a spotlight really first and foremost on teacher voice, teacher perspective. Always great to see that. And your research is a combination of survey, interview, and focus groups. I'm wondering if you might say more about that research process and why you wanted a blended approach to gathering the thoughts of educators. Yeah, so... Um Thanks for that question. I guess I'll I'll go first here. I think uh, what Tim would probably also tell you we're both former teachers ourselves. Um, so I remember uh, thinking back to a couple days before things closed as a result of the the pandemic. I was having a conversation with a colleague of mine, and we were we were kind of discussing the possibility: is it possible they might do something so wild and radical as to, to close schools to try to save people from from this virus? Because um, obviously that's not something that ever happened in our lifetimes, and you know we basically agreed that well if they do, someone should probably check in with teachers and and try to ascertain how they're experiencing this and how they're making sense of it all. And if you fast forward about four or five days, um, a number of teachers uh, who I used to work part as part of a teacher preparation program, and a number of teachers who had had some role in um, preparing. Um, Facebook friends with, and I started seeing one by one 
their reactions to uh, the announcement that schools were going to be closed and they weren't going to see their students for two weeks. And of course, that's what we thought at the time. And I remember calling my colleague back instantly and saying, you remember what we were talking about? I think we need to, someone needs to check in and maybe it needs to be us. And so we, you know, instantly did as our first survey of teachers back in March and April, 2020. And, you know, we've done a number of surveys uh, since uh, Tim and I both independently, and then, then we decided to team up. And I think that the, in terms of the blend is each of these, uh, means of, of collecting data gives you something a little different. So surveys are important, I would say, because it gives you a chance to sort of understand the breadth of, of what people are, are experiencing, you know, how widespread is, is this sentiment or how widespread is, is this finding. Um, but, you know, surveys can only give you so much. I think you then need to sometimes talk to folks. You need to have interviews, um, either one-on-one -on -one interviews or in the case of the last two rounds of uh, surveys that we did. We did follow-up focus groups with teachers. And I think that was really important because it allowed us to sort of uh, then have a conversation like, okay, well, the survey you completed, those results told us this, but can you explain to us why? Or does this, this, does this ring true under, under these circumstances? So you can get more in-depth uh, understanding um, of, of how, in, in our case, teachers were experiencing the pandemic and in the aftermath. Uh, just by the process of talking to them. So, I mean, I think having, having both was, was, was important for us. Yeah. And then for me, um, I had a front row seat to, uh, this whole thing. Uh, my wife is a current teacher. Um, during, uh, 2020, she was a elementary reading coach. And so I was sitting there in the next room, listening to her, uh, try and provide reading instruction to her students and getting on at all hours of the day. There were numerous times it was eight, eight thirty at night and she was hopping on a zoom because that was the only time her students who were nine, 10 year olds could get on because that's when their parents could help them get on. Um, and then throughout the, that summer, there were a lot of debates of what should schools do and, uh, we spent quite a bit of time watching local school board meetings, uh, talking about what should be done. And um, I also was able to overhear some of her school staff meetings where um, teachers were voicing their concerns and their frustrations. And it got to the point where I started to think, well, is this how other teachers are feeling? And through more conversations with my wife, uh, I was able to kind of think, all right, well, if we're seeing it here in this, this small sample of teachers in Virginia, we should probably look into what other teachers across uh, the United States are feeling. And so that kind of was my motivation with my first surveys. Um, as David uh, spoke to, the power of surveys, um, especially through social media, has allowed both of us to reach teachers we never would have been able to hear from. Um, I know a couple years ago, David and I's first survey, we had teachers representing 49 of the 50 states, um, which obviously both of us being from Virginia and Alabama, we, we wouldn't be able to get that just from not using social media. So um, by using those tools, we felt like we were able to get more voices out there. And again, as former teachers, we know that research isn't always 
um, first to uh, ask teachers how they're feeling. Um, and I think one of the most surprising things for both of us, because we've talked about this previously together, is every time we posted surveys, especially early on, we were so thankful for the teachers taking the time to give us their perspective. But then on the social media posts, teachers would be posting back, thank you for doing this. Uh, no one's ever asked me. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I, I know for, for both David and I, it was, it was a very like, it was a surreal moment because we were so thankful for the data, but it was eye-opening that no one had ever asked the teachers how they were doing um, during this pandemic. So I was just going to say the follow up with that. Um, similarly, um, I think it kind of weighed on, on on both of us. You know, we we wanted to make sure we, you know, I think the tagline we included at the end of each of our invitations to complete a survey or participate in a focus group or an interview is, you know, we one of our aims is, is to hopefully give you a voice. And, and we meant it sincerely. Uh, but, you know, there was a part of me, especially when we were inviting people to participate in an hour long focus group. I recognized that that was another thing on teachers plates, too, to ask them to you know give up this hour of their time. And it was it was really, um, I guess, surreal probably is the best word that Tim just used when we would get emails from participants after the focus groups. Thank you for letting us do this. And, you know, thank you for putting together these conversations. And it's um, I think it was indicative of the fact that teachers had a lot to say and they didn't always have an outlet to do that. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I mean, something that I always pay attention to is whenever any media outlet has coverage of any educational uh, issue, whatever it is, I'm always looking, where's the quote from a teacher? Where's the quote from somebody in the profession? Because I do notice it, it can be rare, um, you know, and and I, I really appreciate you bringing up it's, you know, teachers were, were grateful to do it. And it was yet another ask of their time. I'm wondering if you have any advice, because it's one thing to say, okay, we're setting up these interviews, these focus groups. Um, you know, that's one step. But another part of it is making sure that within those conversations, people really feel like their voice does matter. Uh, they really feel like you are going to care about their answers. And I'm wondering for anybody who's listening and they're thinking, you know, we want to do some research in our community, you know, not necessarily at the scale that both of you did, but maybe even just, you know, within a department, uh, within a within an, a part of the school, for somebody who's going to do research in that format of, you know, focus group or interview, do you have any advice in terms of here's one thing to maybe not underestimate or here's a step to take that's going to ensure that people will really be authentic and honest in their responses? I think uh, one of the first things is kind of just building trust there. Um, I know for both of us being former teachers, we let teacher, the teachers know like, hey, we've been in your, your shoes. We know what kind of what you're going through. Obviously, we haven't taught through the pandemic, but we've been in front of classrooms of kids before. Um, my wife has, is in front of classrooms of kids. And so I, I try to make those connections with them um, at the beginning. And I, I know David does too. And I think another thing that both of us have really tried to do is go beyond the academic ivory tower of these journals that 
most teachers don't have access to. They're behind paywalls where we've written uh, some several op-eds for newspapers and uh, we've written one for the Virginia Education Association um, so that we're able to get those teacher perspectives out there in a different media outlet that is more accessible to them and is accessible, more accessible to the general public. And we always try and share those with the teachers that we've had as participants to say, Hey, like, here's what we did with it. And we do appreciate your, your time. And we're, we're not just doing this for fun. We're, we are trying to get those, your words out there. Well, and I'm guessing, you know, one of the primary audiences for the book, you know, curating all that research, bringing together all the stories, and, you know, again, as the title suggests, the lessons learned, um, I think a primary audience is going to be school leaders who are very much concerned about teacher well-being and burnout. And um, the book gives really great data to share specific to those two topics. And you make a few great recommendations for ways that we can think differently and perhaps the you know ways that we must think differently about teacher workload. Can you say a little bit more about those recommendations or maybe even just, you know, kind of go into a sneak peek of, of one of them and folks are welcome to learn more by getting a copy of the book? It, sure. Um, I think one of the things that we found, so one of the ways in which I think school has probably changed for the better as a result of this entire experience is I think there was a there was a lot of investment in in technological infrastructure uh, that if God forbid there was a COVID twenty four and you know things had to immediately shut down again, well teachers aren't going to be lugging piles of books and things like that with them as much because they they li likely have a learning management system like Canvas or Schoology uh, that is going to have all their materials digitally housed. Um, it's I think the 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 ability to teach in multiple formats is something that people have have grown, even if they wasn't everyone's favorite. I think the fact that everyone is a little better than they were before. I think there's a lot of ways in which technology has set us up for, you know, hopefully not another uh, viral pandemic. But, you know, inevitably there will be future crises um, that is, is set us up to potentially weather those a little bit better. But I think one of the things that, um, you know, you, you mentioned teacher workload. One of the things that I think that is important for school leaders right now to to realize is that teachers have a, the job of being a teacher was tough before this entire incident. And it only became tougher throughout the crisis. And is teachers only have so much bandwidth to, to you can't put in the uh, stack of things on on their plates. Uh, one of the things that we learned uh, through uh, one of our. Uh, surveys and the subsequent focus groups was we asked teachers uh, what types of changes um, were still taking place, you know, of the things that were implemented, what was what was still in place, and about uh, this must have been I think spring of 2022 when we did this survey, and uh, over half of teachers indicated that they had a learning management system, you know, which was something that was ubiquitous in higher education. You were used to having that at the collegiate level, but not so much in K-12. Um, and what we found kind of surprisingly is that teachers who indicated that they had a learning management system were also indicating higher levels of burnout. 
And I kind of found that shocking initially because I thought, well, gosh, this is a tool that can certainly help them with grading, help them with organizing the materials and and so on and so forth. So when we conducted focus groups, we made a point to ask about that. And what teachers share with us was was no longer surprising when they said, well, these tools didn't replace things. They just were another thing. So we had to, we had to record attendance on two different hard copy forms, but now we had to also record attendance in Canvas. We had to post lesson plans and hard copy in the office and then also here, but then we also had to post them in another format on Canvas. And it, it, what it turned into was another thing on people's plates because it was not, it was, it was something in addition to rather something that was replacing or making uh, the job of being a te- teacher more efficient. So I would encourage school leaders to think about anytime you're adding something to someone's plate, is there another way you can? So if you're going to have them record attendance uh, digitally in Canvas, do you still need those other two paper-based forms as well? Um, I think that's, I think that's that's one example of of ways in which um, I think it, it's a good moment to really really reflect on what we're asking teachers to do in terms of their workload. And I would also add to that of the things school leaders can consider that we're not suggesting drastic changes. Um, we're also saying things such as protecting the planning time or limiting the number of meetings before and after school um just because by do like you pull a teacher from their planning time to go cover another class or to sit in a a special education meeting or or do something else they're not able to prep their lessons for their students they're not able to contact parents that they need to contact and so all those things get pushed to after school or in the evening after they've eaten dinner or something like that. And so we're just keep asking teachers to do more and more. And ultimately what gets taken away from them is the time to do it. And that's one of the things teachers talked about when we asked them, Hey, what do you need to be successful? One of the main things that they suggested was they they need time. Mm -hmm. And so I would, we would suggest that school leaders just look at how, how they're making teachers use their time and be aware of, hey, you can't just take it because it's there. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because, of course, a lot of the lessons that you're talking about, it's sort of almost as though schools didn't necessarily have a a choice in having to encounter them. It was like, you know, the, the crisis forcing this learning. Um, but the book has me thinking about how critical it is that we, experiment or bring those critical questions to, you know, work as per normal. So even that point of, okay, we've got a a Monday morning meeting every week. We've done it this way for 15 years. Can you take one month and say, you know what, we're going to cut it in half and just see what happens. Or we're going to take those meetings and we're going to have a short video go out and see, is there, is there a big difference? Like are balls dropped or actually is this working and something that we can play and experiment with. So, you know, I I love that the book points to the lessons. In my mind, the other part of taking any learnings on is, is that piece of, well, we're going to be willing to experiment. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on what that means for educators as educators of educators. um, Do you have any advice in terms of, okay, we've learned some stuff. 
we're going to continue to encounter disruptions of all different forms. Um, you know, AI is is already, I think, shifting what we're thinking of when we're thinking about what is school for? What's the best use of our time in school? So for folks who are saying, how do I continue to innovate or question practices, even when things feel settled, like there's almost a danger, I would say, in getting back into a normal flow, uh, how can we kind of develop that capacity to be willing to test whether what we're doing is working or if there is a more useful approach? That's a, I mean, that's a really great question. Um, I would just challenge school leaders and teachers to really reflect on what they're doing in their schools. And honestly, I would tell school leaders, talk to your teachers. They're going to be able to tell you what's useful and what's not. And maybe the teachers don't have the answer right now. But the school leaders can at least talk to the teachers and be open to change. So if a teacher says, hey, the way we do attendance, just it's a waste of time. I understand we have to do attendance for state accreditation or, or, or something like that. But is there an easier way to do it and not just be stuck in, well, this is how we've done it. And so that's how we're going to keep doing it um, is probably the, the number one thing I would say is talk to the teachers. They're the ones doing it. They're, they're professionals, trust them and let them give their ideas. Yeah, I, I, I think the book mentions several times that's one of the issues, right, is teachers not being treated as professional. So I, I appreciate you underscoring that. Sorry, Dr. Marshall, I think I might have just cut you off. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, and no, I think Tim's right. Uh, you know, schools have historically been inst among the institutions most resistant to change. And I think that, you know, clearly this this uh, marked the moment when, it's some it's possible to sort of rethink and, and reimagine uh, what school might look like. Um, the two things I would say, one is for teachers, be open to change. And I think a lot of times, if, if I'm honest, that my, myself and my colleagues weren't always the most open to change. And part of that is because it's, you know, oftentimes change sort of comes down from on high and, and teachers don't feel as if they were sort of um, asked to weigh in or asked, you know, even after the fact, all right, how are you experiencing this? Is this working for you? Is it not? Are there ways we can make this better? So I think for teachers, I would encourage them to be maybe more open to change and more open to the possibility of doing things differently than, than it's always been done. But this, to school leaders, I would encourage them simultaneously to, um, you know, make sure that uh, what, what they're doing and the changes that are being implemented are changes that do work. Uh, for for teachers and and for you know other staff in the building as well, um, I think that far too often there's there might be an initial check in and then it's done. And I think that having sort of a continual uh, continuous dialogue uh, around what what you're doing if you're if you're making an intentional change in a building uh, that that's as important as is uh, the making the change in the first place. Yeah, you you have me thinking. You know, I, I wonder. I'm so happy to see the book come out in part because I also don't know if we've done enough celebrating of how much change actually happened and at what pace. 
Um, you know, at, at Shifting Schools, we worked with thousands and thousands of educators in upskilling during that time so that folks were able to offer um, remote education. And, you know, I, I was working with teachers who told me that they had never put together a digital slideshow and they made the leap further from there in making instructional video content, quality instructional video content. And I think about what a huge leap that is. And, you know, the anecdote I, I love to, to give is, you know, when things were shutting down the NBA, the National Basketball Association, uh, you know, they've got lots and lots of money, lots and lots of resources. You know, they kind of said like, okay, we're just, we have to stop the season, done. You know, and, and schools weren't afforded that option. So it's sort of, you know, we had to keep going and there was a lot of learning. And I wonder if either of you have any thoughts or have had any follow-up conversations in terms of what also might need to happen in terms of, oh my goodness, what just happened and what educators just went through and the tireless effort that went into that. Have we also done enough to say, my goodness, that was extraordinary. You know, the NBA kind of just threw their hands up, not to throw the NBA under the bus, but, you know, there were a lot of folks that just said, like, we can't make this happen. And in education, that wasn't necessarily an option. And, and lots of folks were doing things that they never thought that they would have been capable of. Do you do you think that there's a, a celebration element, too, that needs to happen or, or some kind of, you know, marking of, of what just happened? No, I think that's actually an interesting idea and maybe an idea that that's uh, worth pursuing this idea of maybe celebrating what teachers went through and and not teachers, too. I mean, while we, our focus is primarily on teachers, but the, but the school leaders, the administrators, it's not like they had any advanced preparation for how to manage and how to handle a pandemic either uh, to be fair and give them their due. Uh, but teachers, it doesn't matter. uh it doesn't matter what sort of uh, modality your school was working with. If you were asked to teach remotely, then you were, especially if you were a veteran teacher, you were asked to take lessons that you had spent years sort of honing in and, and totally recreate those into a different format uh, with different affordances to try to meet the same objective of, of, you know, teaching kids, uh, whatever that objective might've been. If you were teaching in person then you might have also had kids on screens behind you in the same room while you're trying to keep people wearing masks and also socially distanced. And then all, you might have meals in your room. So the job of regardless of what the job of being a teacher was, um, it's it was not an easy one. Uh, and I think that there maybe there is a cause or a moment for uh, celebration that should occur out of this that, well, what do you know, we actually made it through this. Um, yeah, maybe some celebrating some of the, some of the lessons learned even. Um, but then I like that idea. I think I'm going to champion it. <laughs> I would agree. Um, just talking to my wife, um, I know she has discussed with me and I've talked with other teachers who have echoed it of schools went back to what quote unquote normal, um, pretty quickly. Like once they, we got the vaccines schools went zero to a hundred real fast. And I know at times some teachers have not always felt like school leaders were recognizing that they were coming out of a pandemic. It's especially with the, the academic student academic achievement stuff coming out where our, the test scores are lower than they have been in the past. 
Well, now teachers are being told, well, it's your job to bring those back up. And I know my wife has said, no one has recognized that, hey, we just came out of a pandemic when at least half the students were online. All of the students were online at some point, half stayed online for extra time. Can we just take a moment to to breathe and say, before we just go hyperspeed and say, we got to address this, 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 and this coming out of the pandemic, I don't feel like teachers ever got that moment to be celebrated, to be recognized for what they did. Um, So yeah, I would agree that definitely, I think needs to happen. And I think those in education just need to take a step back and pause and just say like, hey, look at what we came through. We were pretty successful. Yeah, there are areas we could improve on, but if it comes up again, we should be more prepared. But um, yeah, take a moment to, to pause, celebrate and recognize what the teachers and students and parents and and school board members um, all did during those two, three years that we were making decisions about instruction and how to support students and families during the pandemic. Yeah, thank you both for that. And and listeners, if you if you feel like your school managed to do that in some creative or interesting way, uh, reach out to us, let us know what they did. We'd love to hear from folks who feel like, you know what, actually, we we did do that. We kind of got that that part right. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Um, Doctors Marshall and Presley, your book also points us to research on what social emotional learning can mean for the mental health and academic achievement in schools. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about your findings specifically around SEL. Yeah, so this was uh, not our main area of uh, expertise, but it definitely came up within our discussions with teachers. And what was really interesting was we had numerous teachers talking to us about, oh, you could see the non-academic struggles of students, especially those students who were in a virtual setting for longer than their peers. Um, I know there's there's a teacher we highlight in a case study in the book where she talked to us about um, the students struggling, just they weren't where they usually are developmentally. They struggled to resolve minor conflicts that previously prior to the pandemic students were able to handle by themselves. We had teachers talking to us about how students really didn't know how to act in classrooms or or even to stop talking because throughout the pandemic, there was a mute button. Um, and so we it was definitely a, a chapter that we wanted to include in the book because we kept hearing of these challenges that teachers were trying to help overcome or support students with um, from that well, the student well-being standpoint. Um, through the literature, we were able to understand that students really struggled. Uh, there was increase of stress, anxiety um, throughout the pandemic, a lot of feelings of isolation, uh, which I'm sure adults felt as well um, during, throughout the pandemic. And so we were trying to look into uh, uh, some of the successful uh, research-based uh, programs out there and uh, social-emotional learning 
is one that really caught our eye um, just because it can be implemented within lessons. It can be uh, implemented, especially at the younger for the younger kids at like a circle time. Um, but beyond the just easy of implementation, there's been positive results from a research standpoint with students academic and emotionally. Um, but it's also had a positive impact on the teachers supporting teacher well-being, job satisfaction, and self-efficacy. So we wanted to make sure we highlighted that. And that was one of the aspects that we believed will stick around um, coming out of this pandemic, that schools will continue to try and support students emotionally um, in the classroom. And from what we've read and from what others have researched, it's that seems to be a good thing. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add other than I, th I do think that, you know, much has been made, rightfully so, of uh, where students were standing academically uh, following the pandemic. And, you know, there, there's certainly challenges that deserve attention uh, there. But I think there's similarly, you know, students, you know, struggled in terms of mental health and struggled, struggled in terms of, you know, emotional and emotional and social well-being. So so anything that's sort of putting an emphasis on not just the ac academic, but also the non-academic um, factors and outcomes, I think it's important because it's all interrelated in one way, shape or form. Students who are socially and emotionally uh, in a better place, in a better place with their mental health are also going to be in a better place to thrive academically. Yeah, I, I think that messaging in the book about the interconnectedness is really key because I think there's a lot of misguided thinking around SEL as being, you know, completely separate from academics or completely separate from uh, some of the core literacies that uh, that we want our students engaging with. W one of the examples that I often give to illustrate that is we have a collection of, of free check-ins. And I'll often point out like one of them, you know, by way of example is a, it's just a four corners prompt where you've got different musical instruments in each corner. And it's you know, the question is at the start of this week, which sound most resonates with how you feel moving forward? And it's a check-in, but it's also, I have to do some metaphorical thinking in terms of how can I connect my emotional state with a banjo, with a drum set, um, you know, and, and also just, you know, often when I recommend doing a check-in like that, I'm like, don't, don't explain what each of those sounds is meant to represent. Like, let the student interrogate and interpret that and then have a conversation around that. And it's, you know, this is also a literacy. So it's, it can be both. And I, I think we need to do a better job of communicating that, um, you know, again, it is all integrated. So I really, really appreciated your book bringing that together. Um, in closing, we are very fortunate on the show that we get to speak with authors like yourselves. And whenever we speak to co-authors, um, I like to make sure that I ask this question because I know we'll have listeners who are thinking, you know what, I would love to partner with somebody in a research process or in a publishing um, endeavor. Do you have any thoughts or advice for folks who are saying, I would love to do some pursuit like this collaboratively? Is there a lesson that either of you took away from, um, you know, in, in what way kind of could this book only have been the result of a collaboration and in order to collaborate like what was the learning that you needed to do 
Well, I think I think this book is is certainly a stronger product than it would have been had I just written a book or had Tim just written a book. Or I don't know, maybe maybe Tim's book would have been better than mine. Who knows? <laughs> um, but no, I do think that that is it is a stronger product as a result of us both working together on it. I mean, in terms of collaborating, I think the biggest thing is making sure you, you both have a similar vision and just having conversations. Uh, you know, as as you sort of work through. Uh, you know, work through uh, fleshing out uh, the book and, and the vision. Um, so su- suffice it to say, we had a lot of conversations. <laughs> good, good ones, productive ones. I would agree. Communication is really key. And I would encourage anyone to, if you're thinking about collaboration, like definitely don't be afraid to reach out to the person. Um, I know our collaboration started over lunch at uh, the National uh, education conference, uh, international education conference, where we kind of realized, hey, we have the same ideas moving forward, and that's, and now we have a book together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely uh, was a lot of conversations. I, I agree that I think the book is stronger because we were able to bounce ideas off each other. It wasn't just our one singular idea. Um, even whether that came from the order of the chapter or the the con the content of each chapter, uh, I think just having someone else to bounce the ideas off of is, is a great thing. And um, I mean, even throughout the research process, uh, we're able to share ideas, ask questions, um, and I, I think we would both say we've learned something from each other. And so I would highly encourage people to uh to collaborate or or reach out to people to collaborate it's it's only going to make the work stronger well again thank you so much for inspiring folks to think about that i am sure they are also inspired to learn more about the book lessons of the pandemic disruption innovation and what schools need to move forward Um, again doctors marshall and presley thank you for your time listeners you're going to find out more about ways to connect with them um, and to get a copy of this book on your campus over there in the show notes thank you so much for joining us today thanks for having us thank you thank you